0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Fnatic Futurist. We are, of course, joined by the Fnatic Futurist himself, Mr. Matthew Griffin. Matthew, I know we've got a real treat in store for listeners today. We're going to be talking about robotics and all the craziness which revolves around that. But firstly, haven't spoken to you in a while. What have you been up to, sir? I'm guessing travelling to all four corners of the Earth as always.
1: Uh, Well, not quite all four corners of the Earth, but certainly over to... Latin America the Middle East especially uh, so I've spent over a week in Mexico so I was working with the government over there on the future of different sectors and everything else uh, so that was actually kind of fun we ended up in Mexico City but also down in Cancun uh, and uh, I have to say in Cancun nice warm weather but the pools are really cold that's it really? and that's that's when that's we, where we weren't actually working oh yeah <laughs> that's it but yeah but lovely weather and uh, I mean, if you ever go to Cancun, I mean, yeah, you can see flocks of frigate birds and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, they they're spectacular. But uh, then instantly flew over to Riyadh and ended up sitting down with a lot of government ministers as well as uh, their excellencies. You know, so we had their excellencies and we had uh, their highnesses and, you know, mm. eight and HRs and everything else at these sort of uh, sessions that we sort of conducted. And while I can't sort of say too much about what we're sort of doing there, you know, you're going to end up seeing the outcome of the workshops that we did there, really in about a year's time. Um, Again, you know, as I sort of travel between different countries and speak to different governments, but also businesses, but in this case, governments, it's just staggering to see the approach that different governments take to owning the future, if you kind of want to put it like that. You know, when I was in Saudi Arabia, you know, we were talking about the future of different sectors, just the ease at which these ministers and these Excellencies got things done was staggering. You know, they would be talking about building huge complexes to do new things. And they just go, Yeah, you know, we've got the land over there. Um, You know, we've got the people aligned. We're just going to build this stuff. You know, and this is typically where, you know, particularly in Riyadh, you know, spending about $65 billion building stuff out. And uh, you know when you sort of do start doing work with UK governments, so I've also been doing work with the Depa- UK Department Work Department of Work and Pensions. Just the difference in attitude, vision approach you know is absolutely staggering you know and then sort of when we actually have a look at the west we wonder why we're actually struggling to keep up with some of these sort of more ambitious nations you know like singapore for example like south korea uh china is kind of the big elephant in the room and so on and so forth it's been sort of a fascinating ride can't really say too much unfortunately because of uh all the contracts and everything else but um You know, come back in a year's time and you can see exactly what I've been up to. (laughs) You're going to have to wait.
0: (laughs) Well, that does sound incredibly exciting, Matthew. But obviously, we are here today to look at the future of robotics. So why don't we start off by just explaining what is robotics in general? So
1: when we actually have a look at the field of robotics, you know, certainly in this podcast, we're sort of going to angle ourselves more towards, you know, robots in terms of and I was going to say robots in terms of these sort of giant metal lumbering hulks basically that we sort of talk about and see in science fiction films but actually as you'll sort of find out as we sort of step through the next you know sort of half an hour or so that's definitely not the case you know there's a lot more basically to yeah non-rpa robotics than first meets the eye and that's both scary exciting uh, and it's a really deep wormhole that we can go down.
0: Well, talking scary, Matthew, why don't you scare us with some robotic facts or something shocking <laughs> to start us off?
1: Yeah, all right, okay. So, uh, so I suppose, I mean, let's start here, because yeah, when I'm doing my keynotes and things, uh, there are actually quite a lot of people that say, so, Terminator, you know, <laughs> Real, not real. Okay, so we might as well actually just step down that particular rabbit hole. Now, when we have a look at the development of military robots or military robotic systems, um, on the one hand, we've got organizations like Lockheed Martin that have already managed to develop what we call fully autonomous kill chains. Now, they've done this with drones, really, you know, but ultimately we can start translating this into robots as well. Um, So, again, a little bit of a segue here. So with Lockheed, Quite a while ago, basically, they managed to they managed to create a drone that is fully launchable from a submarine. Drone goes into the air. Drone then uses connectivity, artificial intelligence, machine vision, different sensing systems, et cetera, et cetera, to identify targets and then take the targets out. Now, when you actually have a when you sort of step back in time again a little for about a year ago, the United Nations uh, concluded. but were very careful with their wording that there was a Turkish drone. And the reason why I'm talking about drones is because this will segue into robots in a minute. Um, they con- The United Nations concluded that there was this uh, fully autonomous drone that had been developed in Turkey that for a while lost connectivity. Now, when it lost connectivity, it was being used in the war in Syria and um, it still managed to identify targets and suspects and kill them. Um, Now, what made this particularly interesting and sort of scary was the fact basically that essentially it was an autonomous hunter-killer drone because it identified targets while not being connected to any central authority or managed by any central authority and then took them out. Um, so now when we start having a look at robots, you know, there are, there's a huge amount of robotic development in the military. And what always kind of gets me is, you know, when you're speaking to admirals, generals, you know, particularly sort of European and, uh, and, and U S admirals and generals, they say, yes, you know, while we can actually produce fully autonomous hunter killer robots like we see in Terminator, um, rest assured that there is always, you know, and this is sort of what gets me there is always going to be a human in the loop named Brian. And before we take a kill shot or before the, the robot takes a kill shot, Brian will use his big human brain to figure out whether or not he should p- push the big red button in front of him and kill the target. Okay. Um, now, we all know basically that, uh, you know, from in military circles, as soon as one military power starts to develop and then deploys a fully autonomous, should we say, Terminator-like robot in the field, that opens the floodgates, you know. And then similarly, you know, when we have a look at the United Nations, you know, the United Nations have been trying to put mandates together to prevent robots being turned into fully autonomous weapons systems. And there are a lot of countries that are not signing up to those policies. So the United Kingdom, for example, Russia, obviously, the United States, China and so on and so forth. So while we have these generals and admirals saying we will never, ever produce a fully autonomous hunter killer robot, there will always be this bloke called Brian who makes the final decision, why aren't they signing up to the treaties? Yeah, And they're not signing up to the treaties because ultimately they are generally all afraid that At some point another superpower is going to deploy and field a fully autonomous hunter killer robot and they want the flexibility to deploy their own so anyway now we've sort of got kind of got that out of the way when we actually have a look at the terminator you know terminator and skynet kind of work in sync now from a skynet perspective skynet was this sort of big artificial intelligence in the movies that if you remember, basically would actually look across the world and try to figure out um, different threats and then try to figure out what those threats meant to both human survival, but also its own survival, particularly its own survival. Now, there is a, a an artificial intelligence that's being developed by the US bleeding edge military research department called DARPA. Um, and this particular artificial intelligence is is exclusively designed to scan the world basically for risks and threats and then try to figure out what does that all mean. OK, so um, we've got this system that is being developed. They reckon it's going to take about a decade because it's a very large project. But we've got this system that's being developed that essentially is part of that Skynet. Now, when we actually have a look at what Skynet also managed to do, Skynet also managed to take over control of a lot of the US military's military installations and weapon systems. Now, about three years ago, again, DARPA was running what we call capture the flag competitions. Uh, And these capture the flag competitions were exclusively targeted at trying to create artificial intelligences that were both capable of identifying vulnerabilities within enemy systems and then either exploiting them or identifying vulnerabilities in a friendly cyber system and then patching it. Now, about two years ago, the US military actually deployed one called Mayhem into its critical operations. You can look at this online and everything else. It's a lovely conspiracy theory, uh, sort of, you know, waiting to rise its head. But actually, uh, you know, the the Pentagon went on record, which is always sort of strange and said, yep, you know, we've taken this platform called Mayhem and we've shoved it into our critical systems. Now, Mayhem was actually one of these artificial intelligence robot hackers that is uh, that is designed to identify and either fix or exploit vulnerabilities basically within the pentagon's um, cyber operations systems um now in addition to that when we actually have a look across the pond uh, have a look at russia russia for decades has been talking about its dead hand artificial intelligence now no one really knows whether it exists or not um but you know there are generally suspicious and generally think that it does. Um, the Russian artificial intelligence dead hand system is an AI which has been developed over the past couple of decades that essentially listens out for signals traffic. Yes, So if this artificial intelligence hears chatter between the Russian high command and the Russian government, then it kind of figures that the Russian government hasn't been wiped out by a nuclear yeah, nuclear bomb. Um, however, um if it doesn't detect signals traffic for a particular period of time allegedly it has autonomy to then start launching russia's nuclear arsenal um so you know when we look at kind of you know when we start talking about the future of terminator you know we kind of have the brain being developed and the ability to act that is being developed now when we talk about the actual robots themselves this is sort of where we get into some fun Um, Again, if you kind of remember, Skynet actually took over uh, the manufacturing facilities of Earth to both design and then manufacture its robot Terminator army. Now, about three years ago, the University of Oslo, uh, probably one of the, the... last places you would actually expect this to happen managed to get a generative artificial intelligence which is kind of related to the likes of chat gpt that we see today but it's you know it's like a distant cousin it doesn't do text prompts it does something different but um in their case their generative artificial intelligence would actually design a robot um and then send it to a 3d printer and it would then be assembled and then the robot would go off and do whatever it wanted to do um, or whatever it was designed to do. Now, this one would just sort of move, move around a building. Um, however, you know, MIT a little while ago demonstrated that you could 4D print a robot. Now, when you 4D print a robot, the robot doesn't need assembling by a human person. Um, 4D printing is rather unique in that it brings in new materials and it brings in uh, time as the fourth element. And these robots can be 4D printed and then they walk off the printer themselves. Okay, so from a manufacturing and design capacity, we've actually got those already here and they're actually sort of getting better and better. OpenAI, just again, a little bit of a segue, but it's relevant. OpenAI, who created ChatGPT about two years ago, um, got hold of what we call the dactyl dactyl robotic hand. Um, It is literally just a robot hand. Now, what they did is they actually used uh, generative artificial intelligence and virtual reality and simulation training to create the world's most dexterous robotic hand. Now, this robotic hand was developed by cramming over 800 years' worth of training into just a couple of days, all in simulation. But the reason why I'm mentioning this is because this robot hand can solve a Rubik's cube in a minute, one handed, it's that dexterous, you know. So when we actually have a, when we start thinking about creating some sort of more advanced, yeah, robotic systems uh, that can start play, that can start being on a par basically with a Terminator, you know, we've got generative artificial intelligences that are creating some really interesting robotic capabilities. In addition to that, we've also got other generative artificial intelligences that are creating what we call evolutionary robots. Now these evolutionary robots do exactly what they say on the tin. So by combining the code from two robots together, a little bit like we do with human DNA, these robots actually combine, they're able to combine their their, uh, digital code To create really a fundamentally different kind of robot. Now, again, you know, when we have a look at these, these are sort of coming through in Europe. When we have a look at the field of what we call evolutionary robotics, you know, we do increasingly have robots that are able to design themselves, but then also combine their own code to evolve new characteristics and properties that are representative of both of their. Both of their hosts. When we actually have a look at that, Um, we now have a Terminator robot that can start evolving. Um, But as many people probably remember, the Terminator robot had human skin over a metal endoskeleton. And the University of Oxford, again, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to come from them, a little while ago, 3D printed human skin. It was designed for skin grafts for Burns patients. But when you 3D print human skin, it's generally inflexible. So what they ended up doing is they ended up putting that 3D three hum- D printed human skin onto a robot and the robot would flex its hands, its elbows and its joints basically to essentially make the 3D printed human skin yeah, more supple so that it would actually be a better graft for burns patients. Um, now, that is human skin over a metal endoskeleton. Um, And then when we start talking about traditional robots, because, you know, when we have a look at the the original Terminator, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator, it was kind of a traditional robot. Um, Yeah, we've got the Atlas robot uh, from Boston Dynamics, which is one of the most sophisticated humanoid robots of all time. And while it doesn't necessarily have full autonomy and while it does still need a an element of programming, it's a very good adaptation of that Terminator robot, you know. Um, And in fact, uh, I think Boston Dynamics have been getting a bit miffed um, because when we talk about Boston Dynamics robots, people have been putting guns on them, um, you know, like the robot dog and everything else. Um, So we are starting to see the weaponization of these humanoid robots. And again, Russia about a year ago fielded a video of essentially the Atlas robot, basically with a a fully automatic machine gun, um, which, you know, then brings us into the territory of robot soldiers. Um, And when we look at robot soldiers, again, about sort of a year ago, the U.S. military publicly started training its troops to actually combat um, what they saw, the rise of military robots. So, again, if you go online, you can actually see a lot of U.S. Marines going through woods trying. Trying to figure out, you know, how they actually take out these increasingly sophisticated drones, but also these increasingly sophisticated robots, which take the form of everything from sort of robotic cargo dogs to fully or well semi-autonomous uh, sort of uh, humanoid robots. Um, that's really freaky to see.
0: I uh, uh, because I, I I'm pretty yeah. sure I saw the Chinese army with a robotic dog. And also, were they not using robots to enforce lockdown? Sort of going around the streets and making sure that yeah, absolutely,
1: you know. So um, you had the robotic dogs in their case. You actually sort of going through different parts of you know Shanghai and Beijing um, just to sort of see you know if anyone was actually out and about and everything else. It was also then reinforced with drones. So you know when we have a look at the future of say, for example, military warfare, it's very much a combination of robotic systems, not always just robots, but robotic systems and drones. You end up in this sort of space where Terminator is, is increasingly real. No one's actually put a full one together yet. No one's actually joined all these systems up yet, but they could if they wanted to. But then when we actually have a look at uh, things like the T-1000, you know, the shape-shifting robot, Um, We've got NASA that's created some rather basic shape-shifting robots. um, And NASA have even created some ice robots. And these ice robots are designed to explore interplanetary sort of exoplanets and so on and so forth. But they actually self-heal. So these ice robots will start falling apart or whatever it happens to be. But they've got the ability to change their shape and then heal because they're made out of ice. Um, But over again... Again, over in China, you know, if we have a look more specifically at the T-1000, um, there's this really interesting uh, sort of element called gallium. Now, gallium is solid at room temperature, but if you heat it up a little bit, basically it becomes a liquid. And then if you apply magnetism and all that sort of stuff, uh, it becomes a fully polymorphic robot. Now, for anyone that remembers the T-1000, you know, the T-1000 was this... Uh, polymorphic liquid metal robot that could shapeshift uh, and in one particular case it would actually uh, escape a prison yeah, a prison cell because it just it just oozed through the bars you yeah. uh, and about two months ago um we actually saw the development of uh, really the third generation of polymorphic Morphic liquid metal robots um they don't have intelligence in them yet but we can come on to that thanks to Carnegie Mellon, this liquid metal robot it was the size of a of a of a lego man um ended up doing exactly what the t-1000 did in the terminator movies it ended up escaping from a prison cell by <laughs> oozing through the bars but then yeah. reforming of on the other side of the bars. So, you know, so as I say, you know, when we start having a look at the future of sort of slightly scary robotics, it's on the one hand, I think, both fascinating but (laughs) also freaky particularly in the yeah you know, particularly when in the back of my head I'm th- I'm seeing all these different things being developed and thinking hey that's really cool there are some great applications of a polymorphic liquid metal robot etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know what happens basically when some frankly idiot basically weaponizes these things and really goes to town on trying
0: to weaponize these things I, w- I wanted to get your thoughts on domestic robots as well I saw a stat that 40% of domestic chores will be done by robots in in 10 years time Um, but can you just tell us how progressive everything is right now i mean obviously people are probably unaware of how much already robots are doing behind the scenes but can you tell us in five ten years time what our life will look like
1: in 2069 it's going to be samsung's 100th birthday so samsung sort of brought me in basically to have conversations with them about what life in 2069 could actually look like you know and we put together a report basically called the kx50 report which again you can see online and you can sort of you know move through etc etc and um yeah one of the things basically that samsung identified through its consumer research when they went out to lots of people and said you know what of all of the different things that samsung could create and produce you know what's the thing that you want to see us develop the most and actually about 60 percent of people said we want a robot that can do all of our housework you know the ironing lay the table you know the dishwasher and all that kind of stuff so, you know, so Samsung sort of went off and, and did some stuff behind the scenes. Now, it says 2021. Um, Samsung actually unveiled their first domestic robot. Now, it would cost about five thousand um, dollars. They aren't selling them yet. But this domestic robot, again, uses a combination of artificial intelligence and machine vision. Um, it's been trained in a very specific way. Now, when we think about artificial intelligence, we think artificial narrow intelligence, you know, where narrow AI is very good at doing one thing, like loading the dishwasher, but it can't lay a table. You know, it, it, a narrow AI applies to everything and it's very good at maths, but it sucks at physics, you know, whatever it happens to be. So we have this increasing, increasingly common concept of what we call generalized artificial intelligence, not to be confused with general artificial intelligence, which is where AI exceeds the the capabilities of humans. Um, But generalized artificial intelligence um, are AIs, basically, that can do multiple different things. Now, in Samsung's case, their generalized artificial intelligence, which is packed into a hybrid robot brain, you know, chip in its head, basically, is able to do loads and loads of different things. So if you're sitting on a sofa, it can go to the fridge and it can get you out a can of beer uh, and it can bring it to you. Uh, It can tidy the table, it can lay the table, it can load the dishwasher, it can vacuum the floors, it can clean the sides, it can can, uh, tidy away and fold the laundry, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, that's sort of kind of a fun thing. Um, But again, you know, sort of when we actually talk about where we'll be in the next 10 years time, um, the fact of the matter is, you know, if you have a look, just for example, at robot vacuum cleaners, um, the majority of people don't have a robot vacuum cleaner. You know, despite the fact that they cost about 300 quid, you just sort of plug them in and, you know, you go out and then they vacuum your floor. And this leads us to kind of this. Today, basically, we've got the technology and tools that allow us to create these relatively advanced robots like Samsung's, um, you know, robot Um but the reason why we don't see these things in home, in homes is because people don't necessarily trust them or there's a cultural barrier or they're too expensive or whatever it happens to be. So what we see from a cultural perspective is once we've developed something along the lines of the Samsung home robot, when Samsung starts selling it, It'll still take about 10 to 20 years before these things become commonplace, you know, not necessarily even ubiquitous, simply because as humans, you know, we sort of go, oh, brand new shiny thing, but I will wait a very long time to buy the the brand new shiny thing. Um, But um, yeah, I mean, some some of the breakthroughs that we're actually seeing into what we call generalized robots, you know, especially with things like the Google Everyday Robot Project um, where these robots basically, will actually sort out different things around the home. You know, They'll take the trash out. They will sort your trash for you as well, et cetera, et cetera. Um, MIT have got some very exciting programs as well, basically, on that front. Um, you know, we already have a lot of the technologies that we need to help us yeah. really eliminate probably about 80% of household chores, tidy the kids' bedrooms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's going to be a very long time before most people or even a decent a decent majority of people actually have a robot at home tidying in the kid's bedroom well, even though you actually probably want to buy one now
0: we're talking about elimination the other eliminating factor is robots are eliminating jobs they're obviously going to increase economic growth and you know produce new opportunities but what is the impact going to be in the short term in the next 10 years let's say following on from that strand on jobs
1: yeah. So so this is where when we actually have a look at the impact of, you know, of, of robotics, basically on jobs, you know, you've got robotic process automation, which is software. You've got just general automation itself in in the, in the terms of sort of, you know, cognitive artificial intelligence generative artificial intelligence is a little bit like chat GPT, which has the potential to disrupt about a, a billion jobs and about 20 trillion dollars worth of, G, of GDP. Um, But if we sort of stay away, basically, from kind of the software based robotic systems, you know, that are actually emerging um, and have a look at traditional robots. Um, About two years ago, Amazon managed to develop a, a very dexterous and very fast picking robot. Now, one of the biggest problems that companies like Amazon have had when it comes to bringing robots basically into the warehouses, robots are very good at sort of, you know, lifting loads and moving about the warehouses and all that kind of stuff. But frankly, human workers basically are still by far or were still by far the best way to get goods picked. You know, so in the Amazon warehouses, you'll receive these bins of products and you know you'll pick out the lego bricks and it's got to go into that basket and you will pick out a carrot and it's got to go into that basket over there and you'll pick up some jeans and it's got to go into another basket over there humans basically up until about a year ago were still the fastest and best and cheapest way to actually do that you know do that sort of uh, that that picking function um but we now have robots basically that are able to identify millions of different objects Almost instantaneously, and then have the dexterity, you know, sort of typically the you know the hands, the grips, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to actually pick those particular products up and then put them into different baskets and bits and bobs. So when we actually have a look at sort of traditional robotics, um, yeah, we can already easily see how within the next ten years, Amazon, even by its own admission. We'll be able to create what we call dark warehouses, where there are no people involved and there are no people overseeing these systems. Um, now, the reason why Amazon say that it's going to take them up to about ten years to develop a fully dark warehouse um, is simply because they've got millions and millions of different types of products. Now, as we start having a look, basically, at some of the other functions, you know, when we start talking about replacing humans in humans in particularly manufacturing settings. Um, we're seeing robots now that are fantastic at sewing. Now, a silly little stat, but an important stat on that particular one is these robots basically that can sew your clothes just as well as a human seamstress can. Um, actually displace about 200 million jobs, especially in Asia, you know, where we have a lot of uh, a lot of sort of clothing you know manufacturing um centers. Um, but one of the, sort of the oddest stats for me basically that I sort of discovered about eight months ago was um a robot that can sew um and stitch together clothing and all that kind of stuff could actually end up putting over one hundred and sixty million child workers out of work bearing in mind that children aren't really supposed to be in a lot of these uh these manufacturing centers anyway so that was a weird one you know we saw that actually come out from a number of charities that sort of started putting the sums together um but then when we start sort of moving up the stack um you know when we have a look at companies like foxconn foxconn basically make you know all your iphones all your gadgets they're making cars and everything else now etc 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 Um, Foxconn have created essentially sort of hybridized kind of generalized robots that can quite quickly move from doing one thing to another. So anyone in manufacturing will know that, um, once you've trained your robot to do one thing, for example, you know, lift a, a a piece of sheet metal and put it onto a car. It's very difficult and very expensive to retrain that robot to, for example, to put together a phone or whatever it happens to be, so robots generally have been very inflexible when it comes between when it comes to moving between different tasks and and functions. However, again, really kickstarted by Foxconn and Google, um, now basically we have the development of robots that uh, can retrain themselves. So we've even got the development of robots, courtesy of MIT, like the Baxter robot, where if I want to train the robot to do a new task, I put on a brain machine interface. I think about the task I want the robot to do. So, I mean, it could be anything, you know, whatever happens to be, And telepathically, I train the robot and the robot can now do whatever that task happens to be. Now, in addition to that, when we start having a look at some of the Google and Foxconn projects, by combining robots, so actual you know metal chunky robots um, with artificial intelligence in the cloud, I can now teach one robot to do something new, you know, like open a door. But that robot is essentially connected to every other robot, essentially via a hive mind. So that single robot can now teach all of the other robots that new skill instantly. So when it comes to repurposing robots in the factory, when it comes to helping them move from doing one thing to doing something completely different, the training cost is now almost zero. The time that it takes us to do it is almost zero. The effort and resources involved are almost zero. Which means that increasingly, when we think about industry 4.0, we will see more robots actually taking more human jobs because they are much, much easier to retrain. So there's this whole strand of, should we say, robotic technology developments that are actually happening now that a lot of people actually don't see, don't even necessarily think about. Slowly but surely, all these different technologies and these different innovations and breakthroughs are getting better and better and better, even down to the point when now we're starting to see the development of of robots that are self-aware. So when we have a look at the manufacturing setting and we talk about cobots, where, for example, we tag team a human with a robot, for example, in a car manufacturing uh, or a car factory um, to do things. Increasingly, we're now starting to imbue robots with artificial robotic skin. So if they accidentally hit the human worker, they the robots actually feel pain. <laughs> we're also starting to see the development of self-aware robots that are not just aware of themselves but also aware of the concept of time, because the concept of time is a sort of uniquely human kind of or biological trait. You know, robots don't have a sense of time. So when we have a look at the development of robots that are self-aware, there's a lot of stuff happening there. And then this sort of moves me on to this one. Um, A lot of people wonder when we will get conscious robots. Now, for anyone that's actually read my emerging technology codex, which you can download from the site, you might have picked up in the robotics section, a technology called neurobiotics. So that's neuro is in neurology, brain, that sort of stuff. Um, again, when we actually have a look over the pond, basically to, uh, to those crazy Americans, um, we're actually seeing DARPA as well as other organizations create some of the world's first conscious robots. And people sort of might wonder how we actually do that. Now, there's kind of two ways that we can do it. Uh, Firstly, we've got organizations that have actually digitized biological brains and then put them into Lego robots, and those Lego robots will go off and do different things. But it's estimated that these robots with digitized biological brains actually have a sense of consciousness because of the way that they react to different uh, stimuli and all that kind of stuff. Um, But if we want to talk about real robots with real consciousness, um, then DARPA has a fun little project that they've been uh, dabbling about with for years. And this is neurobiotics. And this is where you take worm brains and all these and dragonfly brains, and you put those brains into the bodies of robots. (laughs) So even though we are using insect brains in robots at the moment, they are still classified as actually conscious robots. They're kind of like this cyborg mashup. In the case of uh, dragonfly brains, when you put a dragonfly brain into a robot, um, that robot gets very, very good at, ironically, missile defense (laughs) because dragonflies are one of the very, very few creatures that are able to predict where their prey is going next which is very hand, handy in missile defense. So a lot of the, I've sort of got to stress, basically a lot of the robots, the conscious robots that are being created at the moment are really small scale. But, uh, you know, when you have a look at, again, the sort of military applications, there are some interesting and weird things going on. But again, when you have a look at DARPA, for example, DAR- and I've got to put this in simply because, again, it sounds crazy, but, you know, this this takes us into the convergence of quite a lot of different technologies DARPA have been recruiting lots of human gamers uh, to train their robot swarms in battlefield, in, in battlefield simulations. And the reason for that is, you know, if you have a look at people who play Call of Duty, for example, you know, uh, or these first person shooters, you know, as an e-gamer, you are trying to figure out the best strategy to use to take out your your enemy, your opponent, basically, in in these gaming environments. So, DARPA has been putting brain machine interface hats, helmets, whatever, onto gamers' heads, recording their brain waves, and then telepathically. I mean, I say telepathically, we're sort of using human brain waves to, to train robots and robot swarms and robot systems, a little bit like the MIT Baxter robot. In this particular case, DARPA are actually using the brain waves of human gamers to help them train robot swarms and help those swarms develop better battlefield strategies mm-hmm. which again there's I mean something you can't really make up but again it, it just shows the power of what happens when you start combining different technologies together So it's quite interesting to start seeing the convergence of, for example, you know, brain machine interfaces and essentially human telepathic capabilities, basically with the training and development of robots that at some point might end up killing us all background to the terminator.
0: Of course, always background to the terminator. But before we finish off Matthew, I know you're a big fan of hive minds uh, in robots and obviously they're now at a point where they can self-heal. They don't need the human aid anymore. But what can the humans learn from the hive mind mentality? Humans
1: can already have a hive mind. Um so the same the technologies that we've actually used to create robotic hive minds are actually being they're, they're, they're being adapted I'll sort of use that. You know, we're very big. And this is at a very basic level uh, being adapted so that we can actually create human hive minds. So there's a particular program called BrainNet uh, and essentially using, uh, again, skull caps, so brain machine interface, skull caps. uh, We've already put people together together. to share telepathic thoughts you know so if you think about the borg in star trek i was going to say star wars but if you think about that <laughs> that'd be wrong um but if you think about uh you know the borg in uh in star trek you know they kind of have this, this you know this hive mind mentality where you know They all kind of not necessarily think the same thing, but they can all share the same thoughts and brain and all that kind of bits and bobs. We're already breaking down those barriers Um, and organizations like sort of Harvard, MIT, University College of London. You know, there are quite a lot of organizations and universities that are actually sort of, you know, really pushing beyond the bleeding edge on this. Um, So we can see a point in time where humans can if they wanted to, if we wanted to, actually share a hive mind construct, um, but from a from a learning perspective, you know, we've already seen the use of artificial intelligence, again, courtesy of the U.S. military as well as China, being used to help upload knowledge to people's minds, which I think we've sort of spoken about in previous podcasts, um, because the human brain is plastic. You know, just as I'm sort of talking and people are absorbing knowledge, you know, what we've managed to do and we managed to do this sort of really four or five years ago now uh, is simply find a way to telepathically train people, you know, and yeah, you know, whether this is kind of a kind of neuro training, neuroscience, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's a whole conversation really on the future of education, which maybe we should talk about in the future um, so there's a lot, basically, that humans can actually learn from robots. I'll sort of put that carefully, but there's a lot that we can also adapt, basically, from sort of the world of robotic technology to actually benefit ourselves. You know, and that's before we get anywhere near, near things like androids, uh, cyborgs, and all these kind of other things that we're again seeing the sort of the the early developments of. You know, when we sort of think about robots, you know, a lot of people will still will probably still be thinking about you know the big metal hulking robot, you know, that's chasing you down the street or carrying your shopping or whatever it happens to be or both. You know, maybe if you've gone to the shops and uh, you're sprinting back home. You know, when we actually have a look at the future of robotics, you've also got to think a lot smaller and you've also got to think laterally. So we've converted biological organisms into robots. So these are called xenobots. A little while ago, I see a couple of universities took frog stem cells. Um, they managed to program them and then managed to create really the first living programmable robots. Now, when I talk about these robots, there's nothing metal or artificial about these robots. They are purely organic, um, but these Xenobot robots uh, are capable of doing basic tasks. They can be programmed and surprisingly, uh, which might worry people, uh, they manage to replicate.
0: Oh, good. So we've
1: sort of got, yeah, so we've got Xeno, you know, xenobots is a really sort of fascinating area. We've got biohybrid robots, which are a combination of inorganic and organic um, materials. You know, so when we look at biohybrid robots, you know, we, we've managed to turn algae into biohybrid robots and it can, they, these things can go off and detect pollution and you know, do sensing uh, tasks and duties and everything else um we've also got uh, dna and molecular robots now a dna robot is a robot that is made out of dna that can do things kind of at the nanoscale you know pick up molecules and do, do different tasks you know this gets us edges us closer to things like nanobots nanomachines. machines, but uh, in the case of things like uh, in the case of things like uh, molecular robots, a little while ago we managed to create a set of molecular-sized robots. Yeah. So just think of a regular robot that's just made out of molecules, you know, and much much smaller. Obviously, we managed to put these molecular robots in a production line, and we managed to get them to create molecular-sized products. Now, from a future of manufacturing perspective, those are the first kind of generation 0.01 molecular assemblers. So, you know, as I say, you know, when we start having a look, basically, at this sort of field of robotics, it's not just these kind of hulking, you know, metal robot dogs that, that are being used for last mile delivery or Humanoid robots that are being used for a variety of different purposes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, they go much, much smaller than that. And even when we have a look at things like soft robotics, yeah, we've got uh, robots that are actually made out of, for example, mammalian muscle cells that are able to perform different functions. We've even got crystal robots. I mentioned ice robots earlier, but we've also got crystal robots. And these crystal robots are literally robots made out of crystals. You know, if you sort of think about, you know, amethysts and everything else, I'm talking literal crystals that are able to move and perform different tasks and functions and everything else. So really, you know, when we actually have a look at the future of robots and robotics, you know, the physical ones, as opposed to the software and artificial intelligence and RPA-based ones. Not only is it fascinating, but there's a huge amount of research going on, even in the case of things like inflatable robots, where NASA, for example, again, has been working with a variety of different universities to create inflatable robots. And the idea behind these inflatable robots is, you know, just like a balloon, um, you you ship them up into space, uh, deflated, and which means that they take up very little space and so on and so forth. Once they're on the International Space Station, you inflate them and then you get them to do tasks like, you know, taking panels off of the ISS or whatever it happens to be. But when we have a look at inflatable robot robots, the biggest problem that we have with inflatable robots is trying to control their movements because, you know, they're generally kind of floppy and everything else. So this is where advanced sensing comes to play, Comes into play, advanced artificial intelligence comes into play. Um, but, um, you know, if you sort of have a look at the 311 emerging technology codex, there's a, there's a section in there called robotics. And all these are actually covered in a lot of detail in there. Um, and then when we have a look at nanobots, you know, nanobots are traditionally made out of either organic, Inorganic or a combination of both materials, and uh, when we have a look at nanobots, we've managed to create nanobot swarms about three years ago um, that are capable of very basic in vivo human surgery. So you know, if you tear the if you tear your gut, um, then yeah, if you tear your gut uh, or your intestine, these nanobots can swarm to the area. And there's some funky videos on it. Yeah. I mean, these are really basic. You know, you never, you're not going to see these in healthcare for another thirty years, um, but they can actually repair that site. Uh, when we have a look at sort of similar kind of robots, we've got robots that are able to enter into the human body that are fitted out with three D bioprinters. And these robots, I mean, they tend to look like endoscopes. And there aren't that many, but there are a few. They're able to go into the human body, identify soft tissue tears and then 3d print you know soft tissue over the tear um to repair it um so we've also got nanobots that are able to identify and then drill into and kill cancerous cells um which kind of starts taking us into an area uh that I sort of call hybrid immune systems which is kind of a combination a little bit of nanotech but much more genetic engineering so maybe we talk about that um in the future Definitely. um yeah. would essentially turns the human body into a really almost an immortal instrument you know where these hybrid immune systems are able to identify disease and then kill it as soon as it appears you know so that's completely different topic there's a lot more detail than that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we could have some fun with that in the future.
0: There's a lot. I mean, that was an incredible overview of just the amazing yeah. things and terrifying things which are going on in the world of robotics. Matthew, we thank you for your genius insights as always, and we wish you well on your travels. And we will see you again very shortly to be able to touch on all these other little subjects which you flirted, you know, that we may be able to get involved with very you know, very soon. Absolutely. Thank yeah, you, Yeah, well,
1: you take it easy. Cheers, Freddie. Take it easy, Have everyone. Have a good one, mate. Speak to you soon. Speak to you. Bye. Ta-da.